So you've negotiated the business terms of the lease and have received a lease document to review. What now? Should you have an attorney review it and negotiate the lingual language? I'm Jan Gibbons, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Bob Gibbons. And on this week's episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord, we have a special guest, our friend and attorney, wait a minute, who typed those words in the same sentence? Steve Potts with the Potts Law Group. Steve, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for agreeing to share your treasure trove of knowledge with us. So let's talk leases. In all your years of doing this, what would you say is the number one thing people should do first when negotiating a lease? Actually, uh, for us, there's three preliminary but really important matters. We want to know first what the client wants to accomplish. Um, We want to know the story behind the story. Yes, they want a lease, but why do they want a lease in the first place? We just want to know what the underlying motivation is. So this kind of goes to the goals and objectives of the company in doing a lease so you can better understand how to represent them, I guess. Yeah, exactly. What are they up to at this particular point in time and why have they ended up on our doorstep? Yes, they want us to look at a lease or maybe do some drafting, but there's motivation behind that. Why did they do the lease in the first place? Are they moving from new offices? Are they expanding? What's going on? You know, we do the same thing on ours. And we, we always start with the corporate goals and objectives because if we don't know that and all we do is rush out to do a a real estate deal, we're probably going to do the wrong deal. So we want to know how can the real estate decisions support the corporate goals and objectives, not the other way around. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing the same thing. Yeah, you have to have the overall context. The the rest of it's details. Yeah. Um, Another one is how do do we become a success for the client? And we ask them, how how can we be a success for you? And what do they say about that? Well, what do they want from us? At the end of the day, we want our clients happy and singing our praises to the world, right? So to ask them ahead of time what they're looking for, what it would take for us to be a success for them is really important. Yeah. Do they know what that is? Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was was my first thought was. And sometimes. Sometimes we have to tell them. Yes. Well, (laughs) this made you happy. How about this? How about that? Uh, Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's it's discussing with them, uh, but usually they have an idea in their mind what that looks like. Okay. Um, And then before we get going on the lease, it's really important to know the bargaining position of the parties. And we bring that up because, um, again, that's background for all the negotiations and all the documentation. If this is a thousand foot square, a square foot tenant in a 50,000 square foot building to go in and want to you know, change the details of the boilerplate and the lease. Yeah, that's just You're not really, going to get that. Not going to get it. And there's no point in paying us to do that dance. So it's important. And, and that bargaining power can be from the size of the tenant versus size of the building. Um, how many options does the tenant have to have their needs met? Are they desperate? Is this their last chance? If it is, we're going to go along with most of what the landlord tells us, right? Um, required timing for the tenant. When do you need to have it done? Oh, two years from now? Lots of time. Let's talk about it. Next week? 
uh, what do you got? Let's just sign it. You know, we'll cross yeah. our fingers, that kind of thing. Not really, but you know. And then the landlord's financing status. We've had real luck ourselves at the law firm of being a smaller tenant, but going into a building when the landlord was kicking from their their temporary financing to permanent financing. And they needed to fill the building and we just happened to be the missing piece. And that gave us a lot more bargaining position than our our office size would uh, would say. And so that was important to us. So how did you know what their financing position was? Found out about it after the fact. <laughs> but I tend to be good friends with the people. I'm not good friends, but I, I want a cordial atmosphere and a cordial negotiation environment. And so became friends with the landlord's representative on that. And it was after the fact that I saw him and he was, he came to me and went, wow, you know, you were sort of hard to deal with. And I said, but you kept giving in. And, and the reason was that we had more bargaining power than we knew. I just knew that the guy kept saying yes. So I kept asking for more. So that's, you can find it out that way sometimes too, is just pushing around the edges. And if they yeah. say yes, when a landlord normally says no, there's that feeling of what's yeah. up. Someday, so what else can I get? Yeah. What else? <laughs> you start sniffing around the edges. Something about a, an attorney and sharks with blood in the water comes to <laughs> now, mind. Now, now, now. That's a different type of. We attorney. can edit that part out that's, if you'd like. That's to. right. This is, <laughs> no, I'm not can. a litigator. Okay. Not, so the record, a question the I have then is if you have a really sharp broker, why do you need an attorney? Well, Good thinking. And I know a few sharp brokers. One of them is on the on the wire here. Um, brokers, brokers are vast amount of information. You know, we have clients sometimes who come to us and say, can you do this for us? And I said to a degree, but it don't have the, the knowledge about the market rental rates, who the landlords are, what deals are going on. I mean, a good broker really knows all that information and that's really critical. Um, and my pitch, shameless pitch for attorneys is that their brokers aren't supposed to have and normally don't have the, the knowledge or even the desire <laughs> to get into the level of detail, the legal niceties of all the leases and, and also having an idea of what landlords are doing on that legal side. What, what can we do related to guarantees to help a, a tenant out, those kinds of things. And so the combination of those two parties is really strong. You know, one of the most important things I tell people whenever we're negotiating a lease, you know, we may, may have negotiated the business terms of the lease, but they're questioning me as to whether or not I should, they should hire an attorney. And, you know, we always say, yes, you should hire an attorney. And they're like, well, yeah, but it's going to cost. And I'm like, so what? You know, you're signing this lease that could be worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars over the term of the lease, five or 10 years long. And you're going to quibble over a few thousand dollars or however much it is. Exactly. I mean, when you know the landlord has attorneys representing oh, them. Amen. So I'm not coming to a knife fight with, you know, <laughs> paper mache. No, and the, and the lease that that landlord's thrown out has been has been hewn over the years, you know, there's well, they been wrote a it. lot of law. <laughs> exactly. there, And it's all about protecting the landlord. They're not usually yeah. putting provisions in there. that Unless you're, unless you're using a sort of a promulgated form from like the association of realtors somewhere where it's been heavily negotiated on both sides right. already. That's right. Then you have to assume that that lease has been written by the landlord. That's right. And therefore our job, your job as an attorney, my job as a broker is to find ways to make that lease more fair and balanced for the tenant. Exactly. So when do you want the attorney to get involved? 
Well, that's at a, what stage of the game? That's a good question, and and most tenants don't understand that question. So, Steve, when when is the right time? <laughs> As the well, attorney, you, know, you already know. I mean, you already know. We work together. The, you already know that that I'm biased, heavily biased, that the lawyer get in before the LOI, the letter of intent is complete. Yeah. Um, I understand a client's background of wanting to say, well, we don't want to start paying lawyers until we know we have a deal. Let's get a signed LOI first. But we can provide the most value, truly create the most value for a tenant in the negotiation of the LOI. Why is that? Because we can bring up other terms that oftentimes brokers don't put in a in an LOI. And we can go ahead and get them negotiated up front. But, but that creates – I've heard the complaint, the argument against that is – if you get the attorneys involved too much, they basically turn the LOI into the lease. And we're negotiating lots of things yep. that really are better left to the lease document. But you're going to negotiate them one way or another, right? Yeah, but you got to negotiate them twice if you put them in the LOI and then have to negotiate them again in the lease language. Maybe. And and one of the things, and, and this is, a, I'm glad you brought this up because some people go, well, I mean, our clients will come to us. They have a signed LOI and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. And they say, well, but it says right there in the last paragraph, as they almost all do, that these are not these are not enforceable, legally enforceable documents. But see, it is in their minds. The parties have decided in their minds and to right. come back later and try to renegotiate something that's in the LOI is really hard to do. And sometimes we find it hard to, for instance, on a guarantee or limitations on a guarantee that it's not mentioned in the LOI. So we bring it up yeah. at the time and they said, well, the landlord says, well, we didn't agree to that in the LOI. We didn't agree to a, a cap or a limit on guarantee. Mm, boy, we sure want that limitation on the guarantee. We sure want yeah. some other terms for the client. So I think it's really and it's it's an investment. I get the idea of attorneys are an expense, quote unquote, right. but it truly is an investment. Yeah, I mean, I agree <laughs> with you that there are lots of times when I've been involved in a negotiation and we've had some issue come up and one party or the other, either the landlord or the tenant side, we say, well, wait a minute, that wasn't in the LOI or it wasn't in the LOI in that way. It was this way. Right. And so, and we also have seen situations like if it's a renewal expansion, extension of a lease um, where we're doing an amendment to the lease, not the whole new lease right. negotiation. Sometimes the landlord will try to change some of the original terms of the lease and the amendment. And it's nothing that was no, in the LOI. No, they did that? <laughs> I know this is a shock to you. Learning time with Steve. <laughs> but but I actually do the same, not the same thing. I go through the lease before we get into that stage. And I, my argument is, if I'm going to change any of the boilerplate that's in the lease already and make a change, let's say I want to make a change to the assignment and subletting. Right or I want to make a change to the expansion options or, you know, whatever. I should go in there and do that as part of the letter of intent or the RFP process, right. not after that's all been agreed to. And now we're into the lease documentation. Um, so basically you're, you're arguing that same thing, but you're saying do that in the first lease, not just in an amendment. Later Agre on. I agreed. And oftentimes what you're dealing with then is you're dealing with the landlord themselves. I mean, you may, the tenant may have us representing them. One lawyer is in the, is in the kitchen right now trying to make this do right. 
And but if you do it early, you can work with the landlord directly and there's not the second lawyer in the kitchen. But once you get the two lawyers going, then it seems to get more detailed and more. Well, what if and what if? <laughs> so the idea is if we can come in early and you're negotiating and you as the broker are negotiating, carrying the negotiations to the broker on the other side, that's really a pretty sweet position to be in for the tenant. For you to for the tenant to be represented and the landlord not? Well, the landlord is going to be represented, but the landlord does it so often that they'll do the negotiations of the LOI on their own. Very rarely are they bringing their lawyer in on it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that both ways. We we just finished a sublease for a client where the sub our client was subleasing their space and the subtenant was um, negotiating the sublease. But the person that was negotiating it was interesting. Our client had an attorney, and the subtenant did not. But the the real estate department of that subtenant um, was the the person told me I feel like an attorney because I I negotiate so many deals, and I to myself I didn't do this on the phone, but I kind of just laughed and you know to myself because I've negotiated thousands of leases, but I don't want to be an attorney. I don't <laughs> act like an attorney. <laughs> And the fact that she basically claimed to be an attorney without having the license just cracked me up. And what was interesting is whenever we got into the negotiation, the tenant's attorney told me, well, I'm working with the landlord's in-house counsel. I was like, actually, you're not. She is actually not an attorney. He goes, oh, that explains why she sent the kind of document she sent. Exactly. <laughs> Just cracked me up. Exactly. We can tell from looking at a document oftentimes if it's if a lawyer's been involved or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you, you know that. For sure. Well, let's talk about some specific lease clauses. Force majeure. <laughs> force yeah. majeure. Here's, you know, this, this is one of those poor little force majeure clause. Nobody ever wants to talk about it. You know, lawyers are like, oh, gosh, we're really going to have to negotiate. Well, this will never come majeure. up, right? It'll <laughs> never come up. Oh, maybe we'll have in Dallas, you know, maybe there'll be a tornado. Or um, a global pandemic or, or something No, crazy. there'd never be that. But now, <laughs> I mean, this is front and center. When the pandemic hit and all the seminars for we lawyers, um, for us lawyers, started happening, it was so much on force majeure. How can you help your tenant clients? What do the force majeure clauses say? All those force majeure clauses that have been in mothballs for 30 years <laughs> yeah. have come out and are now being examined, you know, with microscopes. Scrutinized. And it is. And, and it's become really important going forward for landlords to update their leases now with the language. Um, tenants need to, there's just a lot of focus on force majeure. Does it include pandemic? Does it include um um, governmental action, you know, all the restaurants and other places that have literally been ordered to close. Right. Well, okay. Probably the tenant should have an excuse for not paying rent if they've been ordered to close. That's important. There are also a couple of other family law. Well, there's more than that, but the, the common law has other provisions and I won't get into it. It's just unless somebody is really needing to go to sleep at this particular point in time. <laughs> One of them is called impossibility of performance. And the idea is that had we known that this was that the pandemic in this case coming up made performance absolutely impossible. Government shut them down. So there's there's there are other other than if a force majeure provision is not absolutely clear, there are some common law provisions that help. The trouble with common law is that you pretty much have to get into the courtroom yeah. to go through that. And so hopefully- Which is expensive. Yeah, it is. The other one, and, I, and just I'm hitting the tops of it, is frustration of purpose. 
the, the parties had a particular purpose in the contract and something's come up that was unanticipated by anybody that made the purpose, the underlying purpose of the contract, um, maybe not impossible, but it, it, well, by, as the term says, it frustrated the purpose. It's yeah. really hard to make the original deal go. But the big issue with force majeure, as I understand it, and, and I've sat through a bunch of the webinars that have been put on by law yep. firms and a lot of other folks. Yep. The big issue with force majeure is that it, it means that there's a timeline that can no longer be met because of some action. Right. So if you're in a construction process, and that construction can't happen because there's a strike, there's uh, unavailability of materials, there's, you know, whatever, then that gets delayed. You know, you, you if you were expecting it to be done by March 1st and it can't be done until May 1st because of that issue, well, force majeure would say, well, you you can't break the lease. It still is going to go on right until the end. But in this case with the pandemic, there was no damage to the building per se. There was nothing that said you can't, habit inhabit the building other than something which was a governmental statement or limitation but the landlords didn't say no you can't come in and so their argument was we didn't you know the building was available for you to use we didn't prevent that there was no damage to the building that prevented right. that therefore force majeure doesn't really apply yeah and and there's one other provision that you've triggered by saying that and that people were rushing around trying to do something with and that was business interruption insurance yeah. and they found out that well gosh you know I've, I've been ordered to shut down well oftentimes business interruption insurance was really as a result of some other casualty something happens to physical right. property the tornado comes through and tears down the building and you can't can't run your business in this situation, it's this is really new, and so there, this is one of the areas there's going to be a lot of litigation in. There are huge companies that are spending the legal fees to go battle these things out. Insurance companies, oh yeah, included. Obviously. Well, and Jan's background is insurance, so we've had a lot of conversations about this. And one of the things that we were talking about was whenever you have a business interruption issue, some of the legislatures in certain states, I think New Jersey was one of them, if I'm not remembering correctly, they were basically trying to go in and legislate retroactively that force majeure was, I mean, I'm sorry, that business interruption was going to cover or be covered by, um, you know, in this pandemic situation. That just seemed to me as being unfair that you would retroactively change the terms of a third party contract. That, that I, made no sense I agree with you on that. And, and just sort of to, encapsulate that a little bit for your listeners is there's this sense in when we're negotiating um, leases, even for very large tenants we represent, they think, well, we've got business interruption insurance that, you know, the landlord always wants to throw in that the tenant has to carry business interruption insurance. If you really look at the business interruption insurance policy, really hard to, to make a claim go on that. Some of our largest clients that have that have just decided they're not even going to try to make a claim on business interruption insurance. Really? So don't don't fall asleep thinking, oh, well, yeah, we can cover that because we have this policy that says business interruption. Uh, make sure you know what it covers. Yeah. All right. So indemnification, you know, this is one of those clauses in the lease that I honestly, as a broker, I review the lease in a lot of detail and I make recommendations for change and I ask the tenant to make sure they send that to their attorney if I don't have a direct contact with the attorney so that the attorney can put whatever I'm suggesting into the right legal language or even, you know, saying, 
yeah, we don't need that or we do need that. I mean, sometimes an attorney may say, yeah, I disagree with Bob. I don't think we should do this. Rare, but occasionally. Right. Well, indemnification is one of those clauses that I really don't even read because I'm just not even remotely qualified. Other than I, I usually see that a lawyer for the for the tenant almost always makes a change to it, and it seems like it's to make it mutual. What what exactly does That's that mean? That's exactly it. I mean, um, there's a lot again of of snore inducing details that I could get into. Um, but the, it really is about mutuality, a landlord's lease that's thrown out for a tenant talks about all the ways that a tenant's going to indemnify and, and hold harmless the landlord. Um, but it just needs to be fair. That's that to me is one of those things that I keep throwing out with other attorneys and the other side is, is that fair? You know, we just want something that's fair. We're not trying to be trying to be greedy here in any way. And the idea is that, that for instance, one of the examples that we see is um, problems with a roof and the landlord's responsible, I'm saying, and in the lease, the landlord is responsible. By the way, tenants, make sure that the landlord is responsible for the, the roof. Um, roof and air conditioning, if possible, not always. But the idea is that the landlord doesn't repair the roof, the leak comes in, now what, how far do the damages go? who's responsible and landlords like to um, like to limit that or not mention certain things so that their liability can be limited. So you really want to jump in and make sure of, of uh, that the landlord is, is not only complying with their obligations under the lease, but they are in fact indemnifying and holding harmless. That's the magical language um, of the tenant against any and all damages of any kind, I like to put in there and then see what the other side says and just see where you go. So you, you raised an issue of a roof. I actually had a conversation yesterday with a client who had this problem with their landlord. You know, when, when the pandemic came along, it, you know, shut down their business immediately. They had no revenue whatsoever. They couldn't be open. Then whenever things started getting relaxed and they were allowed to open up again, they realized that hey, you know, this roof is really garbage. And every time it rains, it's basically raining inside. Mm -hmm. And they asked the landlord to repair the roof. And, then, and the landlord was like, no, no, I fixed the roof. Everything's fine. And refused to fix the roof, even though it was clearly his obligation on the lease. So what happens in that situation where you have this disagreement between what the landlord's willing to do <clears throat> or, uh, you know, and maybe it's the roof, maybe it's something else, but you know, it's clear it's their responsibility, but they just refuse. One of the things we love to get, but again, remember we started this conversation off of what's your bargaining power. Right. Um, if we have bargaining power, our larger tenants have bargaining power. And what we try for in the lease negotiations is one of the remedies for a landlord's default is self-help. That the tenant themselves, if the landlord doesn't do something, let's say in this case, the roof, and you send notice under the terms of the lease, send notice. They've got the right to cure the problem. If they don't, then one of the tenant's remedies is we go fix it. What, what's the, that called, Jan? Offset rights. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because we had the same exact conversation on the way down here. Yeah. I mean, that truly. Repurposing rent. Self-help is a great way to do it. And the idea is, okay, well, then I'm the tenant. I'm going to go fix the roof and I'm going to offset that against the next rent to accrue, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And you can get that. But again, but that's the big power. if. Yeah. The bargaining bargaining power. power. You know, you don't very often get this. We, The reason we were having this conversation is because 
Jen was very frustrated on behalf of one of our clients who the landlord is not doing something that we thought they should do. Right. And she was comparing that to another tenant who had offset rights in the lease. But of course the difference was. Didn't have offset rights in this one. Well, the one who had it was a giant tenant. They oh, were a really, oh, really big yeah, tenant. Yeah. And the one who didn't have it was pretty much everybody else. And so it's hard to get the offset rights into the lease. You never know until you ask. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things. Right. Again, that's why for me, the front end questions that I brought up, what does the client want to accomplish? You know, are they, shall we go ahead and ask for if they, even if their bargaining power is questionable, do you want us to go ahead and ask for these things, make changes to the lease that ask for these things? And there are certain areas you don't know until you ask. I mean, ask. And even if the landlord doesn't give the offset rights and all that, it brings to the forefront that conversation. Well, what if you don't, Mr. Landlord? What if you don't make those changes? Right. Then what are we supposed to do? Sit here with the rain coming into our building? That doesn't make any sense. Actually, Is that fair? We're back to fairness again, right? You know, and that's the thing I like about you. The, the way we met, for our listeners' sake, you and I met because we both had a mutual client right. that hired us separately. We didn't right. know each other at the time. And through that negotiation, we met. And you just frustrated the hell out of me in that I know. negotiation. I, know. We, we <laughs> I didn't think you were going to talk about that. You said not to bring that up. Well, but the reason was because you started raising all these questions. And But the thing that was cool about it is that when we finally were able to actually get in front of the client, I mean, I'm sorry, the landlord, and we were in a room, room in Fort Worth in a, in a conference room. <laughs> oh, this, that was wild. Uh, old school meeting. landlord. It was very much an old school meeting. We don't have the, those very often. No. But the thing that was cool about it is that you were very patient, very kind, very relaxed, and you were like, just questioning the landlord, just like you said just a second ago. Well, tell me, what what is it you're objecting to here? Why wouldn't you want to do this for your client, your customer, your tenant. Right. You and see the Columbo of law? <laughs> and another thing. He did have a trench coat, which but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I guess the thing that was cool about that is that, you know, initially it was frustrating to me, but as we started doing it, I was like, all right, this guy's pretty brilliant because the way he's going about it is really forcing the landlord to think through their position. Because so many landlords just say no. No, exactly. No. It's our policy. I love that one. Exactly. Why are you doing that? It's our policy. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because yeah. then I get, oh, well, this is going to be fun. We're we going to just break policy. right through this policy because that's a that that's the landlord admitting they really don't have a good reason. Right. <clears throat> Actually, it's that's, our policy. That's that's a very good point. <laughs> well, All right. One one I wanted to bring up uh, because I think this is going to be very pivotal with COVID is guarantees. Ah, guarantees. I love, I love, um, here's the deal. Um, landlord almost asks for, almost always asks for a guarantee. I mean, they do. Um, uh, what's your bargaining power? Mm -hmm. Back to that question again. Um, can you avoid a personal guarantee? Again, it's money. Uh, the big issues for me are related to money and personal liability. We're trying to keep our clients off of personal liability. All right. Um, maybe they can stay off. Maybe they can't. If it's a new startup company that basically is a shell LLC that they've set up just to enter into this lease and start a new business, get ready for a personal guarantee. Yeah. It's just, it's coming. They have no track record. They have no track record. But if you've got an ongoing business that has a track record with proven financials, especially in the area that you're talking about, geographic and area of business, 
okay, maybe, you know, you got a reputation. Some of our larger clients, there's no personal guarantees. No. Actually, if with some of them, there's no personal guarantees or security deposits. I mean, that's because they have a reputation. They're publicly traded, right? But for the smaller, our smaller tenant clients that don't have that background, uh, get ready for personal guarantee. So then the question is, well, you don't throw up your hands and go, okay, well, personal guarantee, I'll just have to sign whatever they put in front of me. No, 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 no. There's lots of moving pieces. One of the ways that you can try to get that, cut that down is you can pay a larger security deposit sometimes. Yeah. Just give them more cash security up front. And sometimes that makes sense to our client. Another one is that the tenant, we don't see this as much now, but the tenant could offer to contribute to the tenant improvements. One of the landlord's hot buttons, especially with a new lease, is they probably put money into tenant improvements or at least given an allowance to the tenant to build that. They want to get that investment back. And until they get that investment, that out of pocket front end, right. out of pocket investment back, they want the tenant on the line. And so if the tenant can contribute to those tenant improvements, sometimes that can cut down on the duration of a guarantee. Um, then limiting the guarantee, if there's, we've had pretty good luck in this. Again, yeah. if there's any bargaining power, um, and that is you cut down on the length of it, maybe just for the first year. Uh, oftentimes we see it tied to the tenant improvements have been recouped by the landlord. So their initial out of pocket investment is recouped and they're more willing to look at that. Or we have a, a, a sort of a proration or a, a burn off. Yeah. A burn off. That's, the, that's yeah. the perfect term. So you, you burn, burn off, off the guarantee. Exactly. If it's five year lease, you burn off 20% per year after, you know, assuming they're not in default or something exactly. like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. And, and all those things are really great. And you don't know until you ask, you know, and ask more than once. Yeah. This is important enough to ask more than once. You know, they come back going, no, it's our policy. <clears throat> okay. Well, there's that policy. Well, you know, but yeah, this is really important to us. We, we have a, a client who was in a building for 30 years, literally, they'd been in the same space for 30 years, and we were in the process of negotiating a five-year extension, and the landlord still wanted a personal guarantee. What? And I was like, <laughs> you've got to be insane. They've been a tenant in this building far longer than you've even owned the building, and you want a personal guarantee? Well, it's a new entity, and that was true. The problem was that daddy had personally signed the lease with his own personal name, no LLC, no corporation, nothing like that. They were not a client of mine at the time. And the the spouse of one of the, the children um, had referred me to them. And I was like, all right, first thing, you got to put this into an LLC because the boys were going to take over daddy's business. And so they were forming a new LLC. And so we, we did that and started to do the lease and the landlord still insisted on the, on the personal guarantee. And his argument was, well, it's a new LLC with no track record. I was like, all right, look, I get that it's a new LLC, but these two guys have run this business for 10 years. It's not like they're new to this. It's not like it's a new business. So I don't think this really is, is necessary. Landlord would not budge at all. And so then we went to the limitation. That's the thing I was going to say, Bob, you're not even going to believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of with the landlord on that one a little bit, <clears throat> just because if there's a new shell, but, Podcast but I, agree, over. I know I really <laughs> push the button, turn this thing off. Um, the, no, the, but, but you, uh, you've obviously handled it in the professional way that you would. It's like, okay, we don't like it, but we get it. 
sort yeah. of. So let's work on limitations. That was the perfect way to handle that. Well, and I mean, the 10 improvements in that deal were only like $25,000. It wasn't a big amount. And so right. we limited it to the amount of the 10 improvements. Perfect. And it, it worked out well. So it'll be interesting the next time they come up for renewal, if we can just distinguish it all together, we'll, we'll find well, out. If there's no tenant improvements, that's usually, it's a lot easier to pull off. Yeah, I agree. More fun clauses? Or are we going to give <laughs> prizes away now? <laughs> yeah. Anybody that's still listening, you win. <laughs> yeah. Just call in now. Well, actually, this next one I think is huge right now during COVID, and that's assignment and subletting. Boy, man, we spend we spend a lot of time on these, um, or can you can spend a lot of time on them depending on what the tenant's wanting to do. Yeah. Um, it's always good for a tenant to have flexibility, and so you know, in an ideal tenant world, um, having well, in an ideal world, and this does not exist unless there's unicorns somewhere. Are, are you going around. back to the conversation we had on the phone yesterday? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the The idea is that um, a tenant would love to be able to assign or sublet the property at any time to anybody without the landlord's approval. Right. Hello. This just, world is not a real world. I just wrote that into a lease this morning. Did you? I can't oh, well, wait to in, see how it goes. Into an LOI. We'll find out if it goes anywhere. Did Did you draw little unicorns in the in the <laughs> margins because that maybe you could convince them that way with wings? Yeah. <laughs> Think of a magical world where um, that no this. So what we are after is the landlord understandably doesn't want um, the tenant to just they've approved this tenant and their credit and they don't want the tenant just to transfer it off to uncle Bob and his relatives, you know? So uh, most of the time there's going to be a provision where the landlord has a right to approve. You'd like to, on behalf of the tenant, condition that on reasonable approval. Uh, we can condition it on financials, you know, that there's equal or better financials, those kinds of things. Um, um, and sometimes we, can get it basically on larger tenants where we can do a transfer without landlord approval to one of these categories. They're wholly owned subsidiaries. They're, you know, they're affiliated entities of some kind where there's right. common ownership, those, those kinds of things where it's really the tenant is merely just moving around the form of their business and they're not, they're not um, diminishing the, the landlord's remedies whatsoever. Right. You know, one of the things when I was a landlord, we did a lot of GSA, General Services Administration, right. federal government leases. And one of the challenges with that was that the la the government wants to be able to substitute any other agency at once, which is kind of shocking because, you know, if you have the U.S. Attorney's Office in your building, no big deal, very great tenant. But if they want to substitute that for FBI, IRS, ATF, I mean, there's all these other agencies. Postal Service. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a real problem because that's a fundamentally gigantic change in the use. That's right. And there's a lot of weapons coming in. There's right. people that are going to, I mean, if it's the IRS, you're worried about people taking retaliation, that kind of thing. So I get the landlord wants to be able to limit things. I'll give you another example. We had a TV station, I'm, I'm sorry, a radio station in one of our buildings when I was on the landlord side. It was a nice country Western station. No big deal. Everything's great, right? Well, Problem was, it was owned by one of the big radio conglomerates that had lots of stations, and they changed it from from um, country to shock jock 
think Howard Stern types, right. Howard Stern wannabes. Right. And so these guys were bringing strippers in. They were doing practical jokes. They threw a, a doll off the roof of the building as some sort of a prank. It was it was miserable, and they were trying to get their listeners to come in and hang out in the studio. I mean, it was just it was misery, and uh, so we were trying to limit that. Well, you know what? Our lease didn't give us the right to say no to a change in the format of that radio station. So anytime there's a unusual use, I can see why a landlord wants to do that. Absolutely. And use but, is really important because if tenant mix, not so much in office buildings, right, but in retail in those areas you know, tenant mix is so important to the landlord. But the word that you used is important, reasonable. So anytime I see the word sole, S-O-L-E, where the landlord has the sole discretion on almost anything, I always want to change that to reasonable. There's a few places where I won't, but most of the time I'll change that. Uh, do you agree that that's yeah, generally? Put, uh, yeah, I would put that in there. Reasonable is better than sole, but then you can, that's, you know, lawyers could argue back and forth for what's reasonable eons and what's reasonable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, but reasonable, if you can get reasonable in anywhere, I have lawyers prefer that, you know, for their client. But that's the, just a starting point. It sounds yeah, like Yeah, because you. it shouldn't be, for instance, reasonable is I'm the, you're the landlord, I'm the tenant, and I've decided I'm going to, I've sell out to a larger company. And now there's a big financial statement there rather than my smaller financial statement. I want to assign to the, the larger entity. And the landlord says, no, I don't know why exactly they would, but if they're bound to be reasonable, it's reasonable that you ask that, that they approve an assignment to somebody where the financials are the same and the use is the same. I'm yep. sorry, explain that again. You use the word reasonable and landlord in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> you know what? Kind of blanked out there. You know for just what? A it's minute. easy. It's easy when we're talking about tenant side to, to badmouth landlords and it's a lot of fun, but there are the, the professional landlords, you know, the ones that are been doing it a long time, they know, they're really good and I really respect them. And they are, they are very reasonable. They've done the dance so many times. They don't want to continue dancing. Right. We know how this is going to end ultimately. Let's just go there, make our deal, move on. And well, we find they that. usually have a long-term vision. Yeah. It's usually more the smaller mom and pops that own one or two buildings that are very short-term in their yeah. thinking. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. There's a whole podcast there. <laughs> Mom right. and pop landlords. Moving on. Yes. <laughs> all right. So um, you know the leases contain many places where it talks about all kinds of time frames and time periods. They have to do things by a certain time. And you know you have ten days to do this, five days to do that, etc. Is it reasonable from a tenant's perspective to just sort of, hey, if the landlord asks for five, go with ten. If they ask for ten, go with thirty. I mean, is is it that simple or is there a lot more to it than that? Well, we always do that. <laughs> that's, yeah. Again, that's always the starting point, right? You never know. You never is this know where we say reasonable and lawyers in the same <laughs> sentence? <laughs> well, don't get me started. Um, the, uh, yeah, we always ask. For, I mean, not always. Again, we've done this a long time. Uh, we, you know, uh, you know from doing a lot of leases, like you have to, you know about what the time frames are for each of those yeah. provisions, you know. Um, the payment of rent, we like to get a grace period in there for our client. If the rent's due on the first, we don't want them to be in default with all the remedies that would come, including lockout, you know, right. from their, their, their offices um, on day two. We try to build in a five-day grace period so that if it's not paid in that first five days, you know, that, and it allows for employee error inside the tenant and allows for any sort of electronic glitches 
certainly if they're sending checks still by and why, but if you're still sending checks by by the postal service, especially in pandemic land, that's really a problem. So yeah, you just need a grace period. On that topic, the one thing that I look at when it comes to paying rent, I always say, look, that's totally within the land within the tenants. Um, realm of control to pay the rent on time. So they should be penalized if they don't do that. So, you, you know, leases, as you point out, they usually have a, um, a late payment penalty and interest that, that, can, that the landlord can start charging after five or 10 days. But then the issue with the default, I see that as a whole different thing. For me, a default should not be something that is automatic after rent doesn't show up for the first five or 10 days. I think it should require the landlord to give notice to the tenant. Hey, we didn't get the rent. You know, the USPS didn't deliver it, even though you may have sent it. So I think the landlord should at a minimum be required to do that before it becomes a default and the tenant doesn't pay. So, you know, check doesn't arrive on the fifth. Landlord gives the tenant notice on the sixth. Tenant has another five days to pay it. If they don't pay it at that time, all right, now it's a default. That makes sense to me. What are your thoughts on the requirement to have the landlord give well, the tenant first, notice? My thoughts are that you've officially moved from the landlord side to the tenant side, clearly now, because yeah, that, fully. That, is a, that, is, that is a tenant <laughs> argument. Um, and I get that. Uh, the landlord come back on that, as you already know, is just like you started off. You know when your rent's due. Um, pay it ahead of time. So you send it you know, send it five days before the end of the month. I mean, that's up to you. Make right. sure your rent's there on time. We have gotten that under the logic you're talking about. It's like, man, that's major. That is really major to default us on something. But of course, that's paying rent is, is really the big obligation of the tenant anyway. Sure. What we've been able to do sometimes is that the landlord will agree to give notice, but no more than once a year, yes. twice a year. Just if it's this avoid the chronic late payer. Exactly. And so if this is a chronic late payer, they're they're not going to play that game. Yeah. Now, on the other things you raised, this is a fairness option. And and what you're talking about is about fairness. There's a lot of other ways that a tenant can default under the lease. And some of it can be pretty vague. You know, sometimes it's you didn't update your insurance policy on time and have the landlord as a loss payee on the policy. Uh, okay, Betty and accounting was supposed to handle, you know, that kind of thing. For those kind of non-monetary defaults, I think it's really important to have a cure period where the landlord gives notice to the the tenant that here's, hey, problem here, Mm -hmm. and that the tenant has a reasonable period of time. What is that? Well, it really depends on the default. You know, there's, we see a lot of 30-day cures, but on something like insurance, it's important to a landlord that the property's insured. Yeah. So uh, especially if it's a single tenant building, the landlord really wants that tenant to have insurance in effect all the time. So the idea is if we've screwed up, we, the tenant have screwed up, give us written notice, give us enough time to solve it based on what the issue is before you go and lock us out. I yeah. think that's critical. Makes sense. Jan's a former insurance person. <laughs> we we have this ongoing joke. Every time any issue comes up, she her first thought is, <laughs> How's that going to affect insurance? Boy, the insurance is going to go up. Their loss ratio, it just, it cracks me up. So do you by chance have a question about I, I actually do. Shocker. <laughs> well, and this. Talking about exciting stuff. Yeah. Get ready, listeners. Hey, exactly. now you're treading on sacred ground. This is important. You wait till it this thing important. burns down. Then you're going to see how important I, I it is. I didn't say anything about importance. It was fun. <laughs> um, one thing I see, and I actually saw this very thing happen the other day. In the lease, it says, 
you have to have CGL of a million, two million, and all the requirements they right. want. They That's want workers. Commercial general really, liability. Really, really, yes, if you want to spell everything out, it's just for purposes of conversation. <laughs> She's also an acronym queen. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll have everything down. Whether it's current with how policies are now written or not is immaterial. Right. This is what they want. And then the client goes, the tenant goes out and gets a COI, sends it back, and the landlord says, "Great, thanks." They don't even compare it to what the lease required. They just said, oh, here's a COI. Click. It's in the file. We're done. And they don't match. What happens when there is a loss and the COI did not match what the lease state it was supposed to, but since the landlord accepted it. Without question. Have they entered a new contract? That's a fascinating legal question, Jan, and I urge you to hire an attorney who could write a legal brief on that. I have neither the inclination or the desire. Um, so I get someone else we I, can call. He doesn't litigate. <laughs> I get. Yeah, I get, but you've you've seen this happen a lot. I not a lot, and here's the deal, and it, it's because what we coach our clients on is look. Um, I basically take the the position of. I really don't know all there is to know about insurance. And I say that happily. That's it's its own specialty. Mm -hmm. You Jan know that it's its own specialty. And so tenants, good tenants have good insurance agents as part of the team. Um, and we urge them to take the lease provision to their insurance agent, have the insurance agent read it, see if it makes sense, see if it matches the the coverage they have and then we'll urge them to have their insurance agent talk with the landlord directly initially. And if not, then the lawyers can get involved. But usually lawyers aren't getting involved in insurance. So the idea is make sure that have the tenant's insurance agent make sure that the provisions they're being required to sign even make sense. Like you said, is this like they're, 20 years ago? They're not even available on the market. Exactly. They want it written under a special risk form and it's actually all risk now or what? Yeah, exactly. So, and and make sure that the coverage that the tenant wants and can afford that the, that the coverage that the landlord's asking for is, is even affordable. Sometimes we'll negotiate down those limits. Mm -hmm. um, again, how much bargaining power do you have? You know. Well, and also what's reasonable. I mean, if anybody that says I want less, I want to, I don't want to have to cover more than a million dollars of commercial general liability. You know, my argument to that would be, come on, a million bucks. That's kind of like the minimum anybody should have, right? I exactly. mean, you're in a building that's worth who knows how. I mean, in the building we're sitting in right now, I mean, the building's worth. $50 million or $25 million or whatever. So for them to require you to have one or three or $5 million umbrella, doesn't seem all that unreasonable because you could do something, cause a fire and, you know, mess up a whole bunch of other tenants. Right. But remember in a Steve Potts negotiated lease, there'll be a mutual, <laughs> be a mutual uh, indemnification. In, no, indemnification. Right. So they're, they're both held harmless. So well, after but, you exhaust the policy limits and there's, you're held harmless on the rest. Well, but on the other hand, if Steve causes a fire that affects another tenant, there's no indemnification with that other tenant. That tenant can come after That's him. True. So he still needs to have that. And it's in the landlord's best interest to make sure that he has that so that, you know, if, if Steve's thing does that, well, what if their policy, the other tenant's policy doesn't pay? They need to know that Steve's will. So they need to know that he's properly insured. Interesting you brought that up because on that prior example you were giving that where you guys were in Fort Worth negotiating that lease, right. we had a loss that the um, brokerage that I worked for at the time That's insured. Right. You insured that tenant yes. that we met on. 
And the, the oh, the store, okay. yeah. The tenant next to the tenant that y'all worked on had a fire, and the sprinkler oh, system right. went off, and the water leaked over into this person's space, and it caused their point of sale to go down, and it it shut down their business for five to six hours. I, well, I think they were still running cash registers, but they weren't able to run credit card slips. I, there was a problem there. Anyway, we went over, it was new year. It was Christmas Eve. I remember. Oh wow! And we went over there to look at it and I said, yeah, we'll go ahead and just file it. We'll pay for it. And then we'll just subrogate. And they're like, they don't have any insurance. I said, you were required to carry insurance, so that tenant's required. And they said, yeah, but they let it lapse. <laughs> not our problem. We'll just funnel it right up to the landlord. So so this was not a sub-tenant? No, no. This was just another tenant. Absolutely. So you're saying you, well, but then your lease has a waiver of subrogation with the landlord, so you couldn't go after them. It depends on how that insurance policy was written. I don't know if there was a waiver on there or not. I imagine there was. I mean, there usually is a usually, waiver of subrogation. Right. Right. Talking about getting in the weeds, moving right along. <laughs> Interesting weeds. All right. So, um, Steve, here's a here's our lightning round of can we stump the lawyer? <laughs> is there a, is there a particular clause in a commercial lease which causes tenants the most grief, if not wor- worded properly? Is there one that comes to mind in particular? Just the ones for me are related to money. Usually, the biggest issue to our clients is money. You know, okay. how much is the rent? What are the the cam, the common area maintenance charges? Um, limitations on cam, if you can get limitations on cam and there's lots of variations uh, on a theme of how to get limitations. And the other part of that is uh, related to common area maintenance is um, sometimes referred to as operating expenses is what's included. If you start looking, there is a incredibly long list usually of what's included in operating expenses or in, in common area maintenance. And if you really look at that list one item at a time, there's very surprising things in there. You know, you've got the landlord charging management fees that are part of CAM and, you know, it's like, wait a minute for what? And you're, so it's, there's lots of stuff we, I could talk about, but it would start to sound, you know, as exciting as insurance probably. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're just about done here. (laughs) Push the big red button. Which <laughs> horror stories? You want me to ask a lawyer about horror stories? Well, this was your question. <laughs> well, when you give out advice and you recommend strongly that you do this, and then the tenant just says, I appreciate your input. We're not going with that. I'm going to go ahead and sign it the way the landlord says. Do you have a cautionary tale for when that's really gone south for oh, somebody? Not really, because the truth, honestly, with us, I'm... Um, I mean, you have a sense of who I am and how I communicate and, and I'll talk with the client and, and translate legalese into real human talk and how this could affect them. And once they understand the effect of the provision, rather than going, oh, it's just some legal nicety, it's just something the lawyers talk about, that you understand the impact of it, they'll usually go along with what our suggestion is. The, the one, the truly, I don't know about horror stories, I'm not a big dramatic guy, but the the stories of clients who have come to us with signed LOIs and want us to, to then get represent them on the lease. And I start asking questions say about guarantees and, and it's all been nailed down in the LOI and they want to come back saying, well, it's not that LOI is not binding. Like, mm, man, I'll take a run at it. 
I'm, I, you know, I enjoy trying to take the impossible and turn it into something, but it's really an uphill battle to get a landlord that is signed an LOI that says X to then turn around and put Y in the lease. Right. I mean, it just is because it starts to sound like the tenant is that kind of tenant. They're going to break their word, right. that kind of thing. And, and though it's not legally binding, sort of old school Texas a little bit that, man, we've got a handshake. Well, it's more than that. We put it in writing and we both signed it. You know, <laughs> yeah. we have a meeting at the mines here. So don't go changing the deal. So, Well, and one thing you said a second ago reminded me that ultimately at the end of the day, all of this is the tenant's decision. You know, our job, your job, my job is to advise the tenant to let them know what their risks are. And ultimately, it's a um, cost-benefit decision on their part. They have to understand the risk, what the relative chance of something happening is, like the condemnation, uh, not the condemnation, yeah, condemnation. What's the risk that the building we're sitting in is ever going to have any kind of condemnation, meaning you know they're going to condemn the building so they can run a you know, highway through it? You know, there's really no risk of that in this building. And but there have been in other buildings. I've actually had a client or two that have has had that happen. But that's really, really, really excruciatingly rare. And if you look at a map, you can probably with some degree of accuracy have some decent understanding of whether or not that's gonna happen. So are you gonna fall on your sword over some change in the condemnation clause of a lease? Eh, probably not. But there's a lot of other clauses that you're not we you know, we've all talked about today. Yeah, maybe those are things you want to fall on your sword about. So, but ultimately, it's up to the tenant. There are those type of provisions. Here's a dirty little secret. Lawyers hate to talk about casualty and condemnation. We, I mean, for those of us that have been doing it for years, we go just almost laugh. You get to that section of the lease. This is one where that's it's really there. There's larger tenant, larger landlord, so everything's right. being negotiated, and you get into condemnation and, and casualty. And we just laugh going, okay, strike up the music. You ready to do the dance? Because there's sort of standard arguments on both yeah. sides and you have to go through the dance back and forth. And then finally you go, okay, now what are we going to do? And, and here's the, I can, I can encapsulate both of those real easily. Casualty, at least in North Texas, usually you're thinking tornado, tornado. you know, or now <laughs> direct line, you know, straight line winds. Those are usually the big ones, right? What's the likelihood of that happening? Really, really small. Yeah. But if it hits, yes. that one little deal, if it hits, it's huge. It's really huge. So it's up to the tenant. How, you, how do you play the game? You know, As lawyers, we like to protect tenants. So even if it's a small likelihood, since the impact is so large, we'd like to at least read the provision, yeah. see if we can get you a little more protection in it. Um, and the same thing in condemnation, though I agree with you, usually condemnation, unless you're in a particular area, you can get an idea yeah. for if condemnation's on the way. It's more likely your building's going to get hit by a tornado right. in Texas than you're going to have a condemnation problem. Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on where you are. If you're yeah. in a redeveloping section of town, then there's a high likelihood of condemnation, or there could be a higher be. likelihood. Yep. Okay. So let's boil all this down to the two most important recommendations you have for companies that are going to go out and lease an office space or warehouse? Um, unless you're in the business of doing this, like you negotiate leases for a living mm -hmm. and you find office space or industrial space for a living, you need professionals. If you're a smart business person, you need professionals. It, it just makes sense. Same thing. You wouldn't think of trying to do your own accounting. Usually you're going to have a smart accountant. Insurance. We've joked around. 
hugely important. No joking, man. No joking. Insurance is no joking. That tornado is not funny. Um, having having a team of even you know small entrepreneurial businesses, having a team of professionals is the deal. And and to have a really experienced, uh, reputable broker. Um, and an attorney on the team is really, really smart. The other one is, on the chance you haven't heard this from me. <laughs> in the last 40 minutes. In the last 30 seconds, get the attorney along with the broker on the deal before the LOI is complete. That's that. I swear, I, I can provide more, more value usually yeah. there because we'll come up with a deal point idea or two that can make them money or save them money. And I will say of everything we've talked about today, I think that is a really, really important thing, but I think it's the thing that's the least often actually done. Right. You know, I, it's rare that we can get a, a, a client to get a, an attorney engaged that early. And you know, that tells me, I, I understand that I need to spend more time demonstrating to them why that's, really important. I, I understand it. And it, the, the line is basically why spend money on a lawyer? Cause that the, the client oftentimes looking at that as a necessary evil or an sure. expense, or a, I'd be an idiot business person not to check the box and have a lawyer at least look at the lease. Why spend the money on the lawyer until I know I actually have a until deal. Until you have a deal. Exactly. I get it. But what deal? Yeah. You know, what deal? And if you can get a better deal, then why not go ahead and, and spend a little money and look at it not as an expense, but as an investment? Well, and I also think it's important for them to look at, you're going to do a deal. It may not be in this building, but you're going to do a deal. That's right. So you need to look at it in the big picture of, let's make sure we get the right lease done in whichever building that it happens to end up in. And, uh, and so I, I agree with you on that. And don't you want the best deal? You, you don't know until you ask. So here's some more. The lawyer can bring in more ideas and say, well, what about this? Yeah. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Right. And sometimes the broker doesn't think about it either. And there's oh, nothing yeah. wrong with that. It's just two brains are better than one on that. Well, situation. brokers and attorneys come to an, to a lease with different perspectives and different goals. They do. I'm trying to get them the best business terms. You're trying to get them the best lease that enforces those business terms and makes sure that they're going to enjoy those business terms and protect them from all kinds of other bad things that could happen. Make sure that it, the deal turns out down the road to be the deal they originally wanted and make sure that the document is clear enough and straightforward enough that down the road, if there's any glitches, and I know this is really surprising, there are glitches, oh, yeah. that the lease is clear enough that it'll hold up. I've had clients that have said, I'm not going to hire an attorney. I trust you. I'm like, well, then you're an idiot. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm really good at what I do, but I'm not an attorney. I never went to law school. I don't want to be an attorney. You should not rely on me for that. That's a huge mistake. Yeah, and I'd never do broker services. I'd be That'd be the worst decision anybody yeah, can make, have I mean, me be a broker. We, we both have our lanes. We need to stay in them, and, yeah. uh, but they're both necessary and required. Steve, we'd like to say thank you for being our guest today. What's the best way for people to find you if they need help with a commercial lease? As you might imagine, being in business, I like people to find us. So we're very easy to find. What's your um, home address? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be the office address currently. Oh, okay. no, not really. We, we are still, we are operating. So out he's of our not offices. very successful. We are operating out of our offices. Uh, POTS, P-O-T-T-S, POTS Law Group. 
uh, in Dallas. There's a Potts Law firm or something out of Houston doing personal injury. That's not us. <laughs> but Potts Law Group and it's PottsLawGroup.com. That's easy. It's very easy. Okay. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much. Thanks. thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord podcast. And a big shout out to today's guest, Mr. Steve Potts with Potts Law Group. At Riata Commercial Realty, we exclusively serve companies that lease or purchase office and warehouse space. We never represent landlords. Find us at texastenantrep.com or give us a call at 972-667-0028. And if you found this information to be useful, uh, you know other people probably want to find it as well. So you can help them by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. A five-star review would be appreciated, and uh, that'll help them find us. We'll be back next week with another great show. See you then.